Hello, girls, boys, and everyone in between. I'm Scarlett. I'm Roxy. And I'm Marjorie. And we are the Red Resistance Podcast. Before we get started, a little light housekeeping. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. It helps us get a little higher up on the podcast food chain, but also, we just really like to know how we're doing. Headpats make us very giddy. Also, please check out our Patreon. Patreon is essentially an online tip jar. You have the option of making a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustaining donor of varying tiers. There you will have access to cut content, ridiculous outtakes from those days where our deviations are too precious to delete, and early episode releases. We know times are tough. They are for us, too. But if you're lucky enough to have a little to spare, throw some at us on Patreon. It helps keep the lights on and the Hulu subscription running. Find us on patreon.com slash the Red Resistance or search on Patreon for the Red Resistance podcast. We appreciate it so very much. Finally, be aware that there will be spoilers from the book, future episodes of the show, and potential tie-ins to the book's sequel, The Testaments. They are not detailed and serve to further the analysis of the show. It will be okay, I promise. So with that, grab the beverage of your choice and let us commence dissecting our favorite dystopian TV show. Welcome back. We're going to cover Season 2, Episode 2 of The Handmaid's Tale, Unwomen. Last time we left off, June was threatening to leave the Boston Globe factory because she was just feeling extra salty towards literally anybody that crossed her path, and rightfully so. I get it, June. But now we're back in the colonies, and New Wife is getting used to some hard work, and it's uh, really interesting to see somebody that has held this position of privilege in pretty much their entire existence have to eat shit from these people now. It's mm-hmm. kind yeah. of refreshing and fabulous, and I love how she still thinks that she has a leg to stand on in this new society that she finds herself in because she is coming at the ant with the Gilead speak, but we're not in Gilead anymore, sweet pay. doesn't matter. <laughs> it's really fascinating to see um, Aunt Sarah, who the aunts are supposed to be the moral compass. They're supposed to be the ones constantly regimenting and ensuring that everyone is following the scripture, or at least as as far as Gilead is concerned, how it's laid out. And to see Aunt Sarah just completely gruff in the face of Mrs. O'Connor when Mrs. O'Connor's like, the Lord is my shepherd. He will like provide for me. He will save me. He is everywhere. And have her be like, not here, bitch, as she <laughs> paddle prods her. <laughs> That was a strange departure be- uh, from the relationship that we usually see with the aunts and their response to the word of the Lord or however you want to put it. In a very quick moment, gave you a very clear understanding of what's happening in the colonies and what kind of relationship the aunts actually have with uh, with what's happening in Gilead proper. Yeah, I, I think I like that you brought that up. I think that they um, in the colonies, whatever it is that brings you joy and solace and peace, you can't have. And I feel like that, you know, it is. And if it's clearly prayer for this delusional wife here, then they're not even going to let her do that. Like, it it has nothing to do with ideology now. This is pure punishment. Absolutely. Really good point. Yeah. I guess that's the point of the colonies and why it's so horrific. Not only are you cleaning up toxic waste, but anything that you could possibly find solace or comfort in, somebody is going to come along and they're going to take it away from you. Yeah. It's absolute misery. Which, what is the point? I know I brought this up in the first half, but really, what is the point of them digging up and like this dirt and putting it in bags to be shipped away? Like, it's not like as soon as you scoop up that dirt and put it into the radioactive bag, like that radio uh, radioactivity is gone. Like, it's in the air. That's not yeah. how half lives and o- isotopes work. <laughs> like, you can't just remove the the radioactive thing and not expect there to be some fallout residual from the thing you've removed. This is That's a very, very like loose breakdown of how half-lives <laughs> and isotopes work. It's a lesson in futility. It's, it's purely punishment for the sake of punishment. They'll never be able to use this land again. So what's the point? I don't know what the point of having the aunts oversee it is. Like, I feel yeah. like they could just kind of ship them there and let them all just die. Like, kind of turned it into a Lord of the Flies colony version. 
you know, they're all just going to die with it, whether they're like shoveling it. And like you said, it's not doing anything. Like if they wanted to put them into some labor camps and have Mm -hmm. them do labor, that would actually be a means to any kind of end other than just shoveling around toxic soil to shovel around Mm -hmm. toxic soil as punishment. (laughs) Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm with you. I, I, I don't really exactly understand. I, I like that we finally get to see the colonies because it's always been such a big boogeyman in the book. And then it's alluded to in season one so much. So it was nice to finally see it, but I was almost like convinced that in the book, it wasn't a real thing because it didn't make really a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Like it was more of a boogeyman and more of a punishment fear than an actual punishment. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are varying degrees of colonies to be sent to, because when June and Moira are in the gym and Aunt Lydia is uh, playing these, um, you know, these videos of just Gilead and what life in the colonies is like or how their their agricultural system works or whatever the fuck it was that she was showing them in those stupid videos. Mm-hmm. And remember how there was that shot of where we see June's mom? Yeah. Yes. And she was like loading, you know, it looked like. I don't know, like wheat or something like that onto a truck or something. I think it's been alluded to in either the book or in the show at some point that it's the colonies aren't necessarily all uh, radioactive playtime. It's there's the colonies that you could be sent to that are, you know, it's agricultural work where you're going to go and do backbreaking work there. I'm wondering if this is purely only to make their lives a living hell. The work that they're doing is a complete exercise in futility. And so I'm wondering if they send the worst of the worst there. Which would seem reasonable considering we know that Emily Gallaghered a uh, a guard's head. Sure did. You know, (laughs) watermelon (laughs) splat was fantastic. And um, and Janine is guilty of that most egregious of sins, endangering the life of a sacred child. So... Considering considering we know the offenses of two of the three people, I mean, we also know that Mrs. O'Connor committed a sin of the flesh, mm. but that seems less drastic than the other two. Yeah. Perhaps it's just like, I totally see where you're going with that, but with having Mrs. O'Connor's reason for being sent to the colonies being a sin of the flesh, though we do with Gilead see that return to quote unquote traditional values and the hypocrisy within where the husbands are allowed to not allowed, but it's understood that they usually will have their side, their side pieces with the, um, with the handmaids. And if the uh, wives are in any way, shape or form out of line, then they're punished. I don't know. Hmm. That was a whole ramble and uh, kind of pointless. So I see where you're coming from with that. And I don't, <laughs> but I don't really know, like would Gilead consider cheating on your husband an equal offense to endangering the life of a child or killing a guardian. Probably. (laughs) Yeah, good point. If the commanders are making these laws, yeah, they do. No, that's a good point. You know what I thought was really cool about the scene? Um, That I almost feel like it was the way the wife talked about her uh, sin that had got her placed in the colonies with Emily that sealed her fate with Emily. She says, I was weak. I committed a sin of the flesh. My husband was so busy with the handmaid, he didn't even notice. And it's the flippant way that she talks about the handmaid. You know, she's not, she has zero, you know, she wants to evoke some sympathy out of Emily for her plight as the wife. But she's implying that the handmaid had anything, that the handmaid had a choice in this and that him and the handmaid were off just having fun. Like it was some kind of Janine and Warren thing, which mm-hmm. in that specific case may have been warranted from uh, Naomi Putnam, but just the way that she talked about it, when you know what Emily's experience has been, I think that's really what it was a really triggery statement for her. And I feel like it was at that point that she was like, no, this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to give you this little pill I have here. I totally agree with you on that. Okay. So we were talking about like, about the wife outside and then like aunt sarah's reaction we haven't oh. talked at all about like the hand washing <laughs> yeah because i can't watch the that scene. I, I don't 
I have no notes on it. I only have, I can't with these nails falling off. I really can't. And I really can't. Like, I just can't. <laughs> okay. So, take it away. I Sorry. Like, I just, okay. That actually makes perfect sense why you would be like, no, no, we're just going to pass over that because like. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I hate <laughs> it. I hate it so much. We talked about that a little bit before too. Like you could watch the surgery scene with yeah. Mr. Putnam getting his arm cut off, but this fingernail thing just did you in. I am the complete opposite camp where so like funny. they're all scrubbing up and Mrs. O'Connor's viciously scrubbing her hands, trying to like prevent infection, which Emily later informs her is a lesson in futility because the water is infected with E. coli and with radiation. Wonderful. But meanwhile, you have one of the girls right next to Mrs. O'Connor just peeling off her fingernail, which is really cringeworthy and awful but as a fan of horror and gore films i was like cool um she put it on the soap the most brutal move possible i fucking loved that i did too absolutely loved it because like you know damn well that this wife is prim and proper like she's still trying to spell like scripture while she's in the colonies like yeah. she is brainwashed and like right. One of the most egregious things you can do to someone like this is to put your own physicality in their space and just dropping that, like, that dirty, radiate, irradiated fingernail right on her soap. Fuck. That was, that was such a, it was such a wonderful mic drop moment. Like, fuck <laughs> you, really bitch. Was. Yeah. Well, I loved well, it. It wasn't even, like, a clipping. Okay? Oh. It was the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Poor word. Marjorie is having it's, a stroke right now. I don't know why that's just like the worst thing to me. I can't think of that. It's, oh, I can't. They have a scene like that on, on my block and it's the same thing. It's something about nails like peeling off. They shouldn't peel off. Nails should never peel off. Nails peeling off is disgusting and brutal and awful. And like anyone that's like gotten excruciatingly painful. Yeah. Even just getting like a splinter underneath your fingernail is awful. Hangnails (laughs) are one of the most painful things that most humans experience on a day-to-day basis. There's a psychological study that you're more likely to feel inconvenienced by a hangnail than you are to be inconvenienced by like the amputation of a full limb. I believe it. So we're very particular as humans about our nails. Like, so it makes sense that you would have this really negative visceral response to it, which is what made it so perfect that she dropped that nail right on that soap. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't oh, I... fully appreciate it because I wasn't really watching, <laughs> but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> oh, I was relishing in that. And then Emily is nice to her at this moment as well. It sounds like Emily is like the closest thing that they have to anybody that has even a hint of medical knowledge yeah, mm-hmm. in that place. I mean, I I know that she's a cellular biologist. And so it sounds like she is kind of adept at, le- at botany, though. I'm not really sure how, like, the two go together, like, whether or not, like, your plant <laughs> identification skills are going to be, like, really tip-top just because you're a cellular biologist. Cellular, by the way, is a real bitch of a word to say. Anywho... <laughs> <laughs> so cell biology is um fundamental to all biological sciences and is essential for biomedical fields um such as cancer okay. research um so most disease researches as well as genetics um, molecular mm-hmm. genetics biochemistry and medical microbiology so that is where the two meet okay. um, as well as uh, immunology and uh, cyto- cytochemistry So that makes sense that, that makes she sense. might know something about like actual med- medicine making Well, anyway, so at this point, she is giving the wife instructions on hand care. And then eventually this is how how we segue into this deep personal conversation about how she's there because she was screwing around on her husband. But it also sounds like the husband was screwing around on her with the handmaid. And she (laughs) Mm -hmm. says that so flippantly. I think it's really kind of funny. And she does say it to Emily in a way that she like sounds like she puts blame on the handmaid, like the handmaid has any fucking choice in the matter. And it was really, really irritating. But she keeps saying that, you know, she fell in love and she thinks that it matters to God that it was love 
because then he's not going to think it's a sin. And so basically what's happening here right now on earth doesn't matter because God knows that she's okay. I don't know if God is going to overlook that particular sin over the fact that you (laughs) helped somebody be raped every month. Yeah. And you're basically a Nazi with a different name. And I think that's more or less what Emily's taking away from this conversation as well. It absolutely is. So when uh, Mrs. O'Connor is talking, she does the majority of the speaking here. And Emily doesn't really respond. Like when she asks Emily, what are you doing? Or like, were were you a doctor? No, I was a college professor. Is that why you're here? And Emily doesn't respond. So Mrs. O'Connor extrapolates from her own, uh, from what she wants to hear as to why Emily is there, as opposed to like really letting Emily speak her truth. And she says she's an MFA in interior design. Like, oh, darling, like, don't get me wrong. Interior design is fucking tricky. But if you're really presuming that Emily is there because she was a doctor and you're going to compare yourself to being an MFA, two different wheelhouses, darling. It's just such a life career. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. Like, especially considering that we get to see Serena, like, rearranging things and sorting things out. And, like, of course you have an MFA in interior design. Right. That's pretty much what I, what I took from that. Like, yeah, um, that's it. But I didn't catch this on my first or second watch. I catched it on my third rewatch, which I did about an mm-hmm. hour before we started recording. Or when Mrs. O'Connor was talking about how she committed a sin of the flesh and – how her husband didn't notice because he was so busy with the handmaid and Emily's mm-hmm. face ticks. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't notice it. And I'm so mad because usually I'm like Johnny on the spot with that. But her face kind of like twitches into this grimace and then she immediately switches back into it. Yeah. That's the exact moment that I was talking about where I feel like that's where she decided that she's going to kill her. I don't think she exactly. necessarily had that plan right away. I think she was feeling yeah. it out, feeling it out. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, no, you deserve to die. And I've decided. Agreed. Agreed entirely. I do think it's a combination of things, too, because not just like the handmade comment, but the irony of her telling Emily that love is love and it doesn't matter in the eyes of God. Who is she Hmm. talking to? She is talking to a member of the LGBT community. And then we also see her talk to another member of the LGBT community in the last one, how these people have basically had to fight for the right to love who they're going to love. And clearly the whole love is love and it doesn't matter in the eyes of God thing matters a lot in the eyes of Gilead. And this is exactly how Emily got where she is, not just because she was fucking fertile, but because she Mm -hmm. she has been a constant abomination to Gilead Mm -hmm. and everything that they stand for. So, no, it's not right that love is love and it doesn't matter in the eyes of God. Clearly, there's a difference here, depending on who you're talking to. So don't try to put yourself Mm -hmm. in the same category as Emily, Marissa Mm -hmm. Tomei. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really fantastic point and also stands to reason why immediately after this, the flashback would be to um, to Emily back in her university and seeing faggot spray painted on the ground and going and rushing down to Dan. Like that Mm. makes perfect sense. So thank you for bringing that point up, Scarlett. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, that next scene that you just referred to of the faggot on the sidewalk and then her seeing her friend and department head strung up that got me really choked up same here it was just really chilling and it just made me so incredibly sad and i don't know if that's something i can imagine happening on a college campus now not yet anyway it's hard to for sure Oh, see, I I totally can imagine that happening on a college campus i can imagine that happening anywhere to be honest i mean when the disparity between people that think that they deserve all of the rights and the people that are just trying to have the right to survive and right to live is so Mm. prevalent in our country as it stands right now. I can absolutely see that happening. Um, I can see it happening because I've had conversations with people in the past few weeks where they've used that word. Really? Yeah. And and I've had to correct them. Like, we're not as far along as we think we are in this country. We have a lot of work to do. So I can I can definitely see that happening. And that's part of what made it so jarring was because like you see Emily walking on that concourse and you see that word spray painted in reverse and the discord music starts. So you already know what's going to happen. But that anticipation of that 15 to 20 seconds where she's 
barreling down the stairs. I can understand that feeling because Mm -hmm. I've looked people in the eye and thought to myself, you're the sort of person that could do that. Wow. And that's a fucking petrifying place to be because all they're trying to do is love the people that they love. And if God is so merciful, he'll understand that love is love. And, you know, it should matter to him. And like, he'll deliver you from this, from this awful place. If the, if he understands that you just are loving for the sake of love. But no, it's only only if you're heteronormative, said with all the sarcasm and snark. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I am wondering how close in the timeline did this thing on campus happen with them actually ending up in the airport? Was I'm wondering, did Emily go home after that day and say, babe, pack up our shit. We got to go. That's the impression I get. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I do. But then, I don't know, I just kind of think of June and Luke's timeline, and it didn't seem like they made an attempt to flee very quickly. Right. But um, also, they probably had other things holding them up because neither of them are Canadian citizens and sounds like Sill Mm -hmm. was. So they had Mm -hmm. an in and they decided to take it. So I'm thinking that their flight happens closer to shit going down than June and Luke, maybe. Yeah, because I think that that was the very clear turning point for her. I think in the Mm -hmm. first flashback when she's having the conversation with her boss of like, how dare you force me all the dykes back into the closet? I'm going to I am, you know, she really doubles down on her defiance of I'm going to be who I am and you can't tell me I can't. And I so I think it's an extra rude awakening to her to see her boss like that. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I think she has to know that she can't stay at her job anymore. So what is there to stay in the country for? You know, like I don't think at that point there's anything holding her back for her to go home and say, hey, Canadian wife, we're out of here. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. At at the very least, the way that it was edited would lead you to believe that it was very close on the heels. Like their departure or their attempt to depart was very close on the heels of Dan's lynching. Yeah, I'm more curious what the timeline between the first conversation where he's, you know, gently reprimanding her for having her family on her phone Mm -hmm. to him being hung. I want to know what that timeline was, because it doesn't seem like much time in between those two conversations either, but it's hard to tell. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's kind of the trick of it. It does seem like it's very close, the two of them. (laughs) I mean, either way, it seems like by the time uh, Syl and Emily decide to leave that apparently everybody else has decided to leave as well, because that airport is absolutely swamped with people trying to get the fuck out with a quickness. Right. Right. And... God, it's just it seems so chaotic. And I think it was I think it would be a pretty accurate representation of how it would be. I mean, I think the people that are going to have the out are going to take it and they're going to get there early and everything's you know, they're going to conduct everything as orderly as possible. But Mm -hmm. just like the presence of like all of these ICE officers around is really I don't know. I thought that was interesting that they would be there in this situation. I mean, it's almost like um, it's like a reverse of what we see happening today, because yeah. usually they're trying to prevent people from getting into the country. And mm-hmm. at this point, it's like they're trying to prevent people from getting out of the country. So it's a little yeah. role reversal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought that was very interesting to see. Oh, and um, a little trivia, by the way. Syl is played by Clea Duvall, who starred in Girl Interrupted alongside Elizabeth Moss. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, she played Winona Ryder's pathological liar roommate. <laughs> Do you know what I was surprised to see there? I mean, I could be wrong because I, I feel like I should have gone back and double checked. Did you see the ACLU lawyer advising yeah. people in the background? Yeah. I'm surprised that person was allowed to stay. That surprised me more than the ice. I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> there were there were those people. And then I want to say, who is it? Who's the other group that keeps that that's kind of like, a keeps watch for human rights violations and stuff. Wasn't it Am- Amnesty International? I, were they there? I, they, that- they weren't there, but they're one of oh, the okay. groups that I could absolutely see yeah. being there in that situation. If I recall right. correctly, I think I read like a year ago or something that Amnesty International had um, touted the U.S. as like one of the places that they actually have to keep an eye on now. Interesting. And they advise precautions to other countries. You guys didn't huh. read about that? Yeah, I've was, heard about the precautions to other countries um, yeah. that are tra- 
residents of other countries that are traveling into the United States, but I haven't heard anything about being on Amnesty International's watch list. Yeah. Not not surprising. Let me look this up. I'm positive it was Amnesty International. If not them, then uh, Human Rights Council. Okay. While you're looking that up, though, um, a moment that I genuinely appreciated in this um, airport scene was with all of the chaos and the muck in the mire that's happening – as soon as Emily and Syl get to um, get to the boarding area, or not the boarding area, but the check-in area, you have the ICE officer asking them all these questions, and then the the female check-in cl- or clerk or whoever she is asks how old Oliver is, and Emily responds with two, and she just smiles and says, "Mine's six. and offers that little moment of levity and that slight, mo- that little tiny m- moment of human compassion there yeah. that. Gives you the false veil that everything's going to be okay. Right. And watching it the first time, I was like, oh, this is so nice and lovely. They're making human connection. And watching it the third time, <laughs> I was like, damn, you guys. Damn it. Yeah. Because it's, it's the illusion of a safety net that we're getting. Mm-hmm. And it's really frustrating. It's, it's a great point because in the same scene as, you know, she continues to see like red flag after red flag. And then she's talking with all those ICE agencies, mm-hmm. agents in that little cubicle area. And um, it is completely polar opposite the treatment that she's getting from those same, theoretically, those same agency right. employees. I think they were all ICE. You know, they, in the beginning, it seems nice. And it's almost like, you know, she feels like everything's going to be okay. She's at the airport. She's going to get on the plane. She's going to Canada. She's going to get the hell mm-hmm. out of this goddamn country. And then she's right. up there and she's like just being treated like total human garbage. And you get that first moment of it that when um, Sylvia and Oliver are granted the two boarding passes and she's granted the conditional one. Yeah. That's your first mo- like moment where the klaxons start blaring. You're like, wait a second. Maybe they're just being nice at the door to like ensure that there's no panic. Right. And then once they're and then once they're brought back for the individual uh, interviews, yeah. that's where things get much more trepidatious. Yeah. I also like the airport scene because it felt very chaotic. I think they did a really good job of showing both the crowdedness of the airport and everyone trying to do the same thing, which gives you that chaotic feeling. And then on top of that, you definitely get the impression that this is early on in this takeover because it sounds like these rules are changing minute to minute and even the Mm -hmm. agencies don't know what the actual rules are. And Mm -hmm. Sylvia and um, Emily are caught just completely off guard with the fact that their marriage isn't even valid, which makes me think So if they have no idea that these laws are being changed that rapidly, right? Mm -hmm. We, I think it's safe to assume that the Boston Globe massacre and all other free press is over at this point. So that's happened. And I'm wondering if that kind of ties this episode in together too, if it's just happening on the same timeline. Does that make sense? I don't really have a full-fledged thought there. Oh, maybe. That does make sense. Yeah. I'm just trying to get a little bit more of like a cohesive episode feeling mm-hmm. and that yeah, if the Boston, if the Boston Globe massacre has already happened, then mm-hmm. there is no longer a free press in the Boston or greater Boston area. So there's right. going to be no route for information about what's happening with Gilead and its upsurgence to get out to the normal pe- uh, to get out to the people. So Emily would be in that, uh, in that moment where Boston Globe's already been eradicated. She has no way of getting information. Then she sees Dan hanging and she's like, oh shit, shit's gotten really real because now yeah. like I have no access to information and this is really heading close to home. So now it's time to make an exit, but it's already too late. Right. Does that make sense as far as the timeline that you're thinking? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Cool. I think that totally works. That conversation that they had when they finally actually get to sit down and have an audience with somebody you know, when she yeah. finds out that their marriage certificate is invalid and she's like, you know, according to who it's, it's the law. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's the law. And she says, what law? And he says the law. Well, who's fucking right. law? Like, it sounds right. like the, the, it sounds like everything is already in place. Like the takeover has already happened and they manhandle her into sitting down. And honestly, I think that they would have found a way for her to stay, even if her marriage was still legit. I just, it, it doesn't even matter. Right. They, they, they could have told her anything, anything yeah. well, at all. They were keeping her. The reason that they kept her though, and I liked that they didn't show her answer to this because there is no correct answer, is yeah. when he asked, was it your egg or an implanted embryo the second time? Because there's no correct way to answer that. Yeah. Right. If you 
if you answer in er, like, and we're not afforded that answer, which thank you showrunners for not giving us the answer because we, it doesn't matter. As Emily pointed out, why do we need to know that? We shouldn't know that. Oliver is her son, end of discussion. But in the eyes of Gilead, we have to presume that it was probably her egg. And that's why they kept her there. That's why they forced her to stay. Even if she was implanted with an embryo, though, she's still shown that she is able to support human life in her uterus. So she's worth keeping around. So as soon as she said, this is my son, I gave birth to him, she was done for. And they would do anything. They would ask any question that they could in any leading fashion to ensure that she stayed there. I can't imagine having to leave my child behind in any situation, but this in particular broke my heart because mm-hmm. he's so little mm-hmm. and there's yeah. just no way of making him understand anything. Right. Yeah. And that was really, really painful to witness. I just, oh God, and I know that there are mothers all over the world that have had to do this, parents all over the world that have mm-hmm. had to do this to try to obtain some semblance of safety for themselves and for their families. And you have to make some really awful decisions to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's people at the borders here every day that have to deal with this. Yeah. And they make that decision long before they get to the border. You Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. it's so infuriating when uh, this administration does these terrible things at the border with these children and these families and separating them in the name of deterrence, because it assumes that these people are not making these treacherous journeys. It assumes that they're making taking this decision lightly when they're already at the end of the rope if they're deciding to take their small child and leave everything they know to come here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nobody walks 2,000 miles for fucking funsies unless mm-hmm. they're hiking right. the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> and even then you're a masochist yeah i know someday someday i know you want to do that scarlet absolutely <laughs> rock the ap it'd be amazing scarlet oh. tell me all about it <laughs> i'll read your book but leave me yeah, out snap snapchat the whole thing it'll be great <laughs> please don't i don't want another reason i have to be on snapchat but you do make a you do make a good point like Knowing that she is going to be separated from her wife and her son, Emily could have at that point said, like, no, please stay with me. Please stay and we'll try to figure this out. But Sylvia and Oliver still go. And Mm -hmm. to make that that conscious choice on both of their parts to separate their son from one of their mothers Mm -hmm. and to go and try to, like, forge some semblance of, like, normality – in another country that Oliver's never been to. And Sylvia hasn't been to, or hasn't called home in however long we're not afforded the uh, luxury of that knowledge. You have to respect that these are dire straits and dire circumstances for them to do that. So we should expect the same sympathy with people trying to get into our country currently. Mm -hmm. Like if they are really trucking across deserts to get here, knowing that there's a good chance that their child's going to be taken away from them at the border Maybe we should evaluate why they're trying to get here in the first place and embrace them and give them some level of amnesty. Yeah. No kidding. I don't know. Just thinking like a human being, though. Oh, well, (laughs) we don't do that here in the U.S. (laughs) We don't do thinking like a human. We think bottom line. That's it. Although, even if we think about bottom line, we need the undocumented workers here. So, again, it's a flawed Mm -hmm. argument. It's, It's a cyclical argument, and my brain hurts from having to make it so many times. Yeah. Um, also, so Amnesty International has joined a growing list of countries warning travelers about the perils of gun violence in the U- United States. Thank you. I knew yes. it was something. A travel advisor, the organization issued, um, this was Wednesday, um, August 7th, 2019, quote, calls on people worldwide mm-hmm. to exercise caution and have an emergency contingency plan when traveling throughout the United States. This travel advisory is being issued in light of ongoing high levels of gun violence in the country. Uh, calling the gun violence in the United States, quote, a human rights crisis. Amnesty International accuses the United States government of failing to fulfill its obligation under international law to keep people safe. Thank you, Amnesty International, for caring more about us than our actual administrations on both sides. (laughs) So I found that one. Thank you. I'm glad you found it because my Google foo wasn't working. Um, so let's see. It's then we cut back to the colonies, and the wife seems to be sick. Hmm. Gee, I wonder why. How unfortunate mm-hmm. for her. And, I know. 
And Emily checks on her with some curiosity, and she's just spitting out some Bible shit. And Emily's like, did you take the pills? And she's like, yeah, but they're not working. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but they are. (laughs) Yeah. And it's Emily's silence that gives her away because she doesn't really say Mm -hmm. much, but she doesn't say anything when she should. And that's what clues Mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. O'Connor into the fact that Mm -hmm. those pills that Emily gave her were not to help. Mm -hmm. And how her tune changes... I get it. She's under duress. She's pretty much dying before our eyes, but she starts growling at her. You will burn in hell for all eternity. That's so very Mm -hmm. different from the shit that she was spouting like not 30 seconds before. Have faith in his mercy. He is the deliverer. He is the redeemer. Bitch, no, Emily is. And she is standing before you. I love it. I love it. Because she says to her, every month you held a woman down while your husband raped her. Some things can't be mm-hmm. forgiven. She's right. I she's got a point. I mean, I yeah. she has the point. There is no argument against that. Like, when is being party to another person's rape forgivable? If you have an answer to this at all, you're a despicable human being. Oh, I, I have an answer. If it's coerced. Yeah. Okay, answer. if it's if it's That's coerced, all. does not make it does not free you from culpability though. Case yes. in point, Mrs. I am Mrs. O- that is absolutely Mrs. O'Connor. True. She was coerced into this, but also like seems like she drank the Kool Aid a little bit. But that does not free her from culpability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I just really like the path they took with this because I mean, look at where they are. Emily absolutely could have chosen to let the inevitable happen and watch the wife die a slow, painful radiation death. But Emily herself might not have the opportunity to witness that happen because who knows how long she'll be there and she could die before she gets to see the mother of all transgressors die. That's basically what the wife is. She represents one of Gilead's most horrible aspects is how these wives, these women are just completely complicit in not just their own oppression, but in the literal physical oppression of other women all so they can take their fucking Mm -hmm. baby. It's absolutely reprehensible. Like, so she takes it upon herself to be the judge, the jury and the executioner. And I really can't blame her one Mm -hmm. bit thing that I find interesting is that we've seen Emily pull a lot of shit in the show. And Mm -hmm. I can say that the majority of the stuff that I've seen her do that I would consider to be dangerous or foolish is all very impulsive. This was very calculated. Yeah. That was just interesting to see because we don't usually see Emily do calculated. Right. What I really thought was interesting too, in the last scene that we were with at the colonies when the fingernail scene, um, Mm -hmm. at the end of it, when, uh, what's her name? Marissa Tomei's character? Mrs. O'Connor. O'Connor? Mrs. O'Connor. When Mrs. O'Connor is explaining, you know, her plight to Emily and there's that whole conversation, Emily's kind of triggered by it. And then she gives her like the quote unquote medicine. And on a first watch, it almost sounds like that is exactly like Emily actually does feel bad for her and is extending some mercy towards her. Mm -hmm. And she's Mr. O'Connor says something along the lines of like, oh, you little lamb of God, you know, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. whatever. And Mm -hmm. she says, a mistress was nice to me once. once. And it almost sounds like that was, you know, and, and you instantly think of that one nice mistress that she did have. And you're like, oh, wow. Like she's extending some grace to her and some forgiveness to her because she had this, you know, one nice experience. And on the rewatch, once you realize what's happening, she's implying that she only had that one nice experience and every other experience was terrible. And Mrs. O'Connor represents every terrible experience because you can tell just by the way she speaks of the handmaid that she doesn't mm-hmm. see them as human. Absolutely. That's that's a fantastic point. Love that you brought that up. And you're spot on with it as well because like Mrs. O'Connor still does not realize, even though she is in the goddamn colonies, that no one is infallible and everyone is susceptible to the whims of the men. And because she was on the wrong side of it, just as the handmaids more often than not are, it doesn't make her any less guilty. One part about this scene as well that I really enjoyed was um, while Mrs. O'Connor was in the throes of, you know, death by poison, she said, have faith in his mercy. Emily is actually being pretty merciful in this scene as well. Yeah. 
I would take that death over the fingernail. Absolutely. Like it is selfish and it is wanting to see the, I wanting to see this wife suffer because of all of the suffering that she inflicted upon her handmaid. But also like, this is an interesting choice because Emily could have very easily just been like, she, this known that this wife is destined to have her fingernails fall off and to have her skin fall off in lesions and die a slow, miserable, painful death. And she released her relatively quickly. So it's a pre- I appreciate yeah. that she did. I think- and I think it's fucking fantastic that she did. And anyone that didn't take advantage of that circumstance would be foolhardy. You could skew it to make it feel like there is a bit of compassion there as well. I don't view it as such, but one could. Go back to what you said before, Scarlett, where I think she just wanted to see it because otherwise she's not going to be able to see her death in all its glory. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think it was selfish to just want to, you know, I don't think she meant it as a mercy. Oh, I don't think she meant it as a mercy either. Know what I just thought about, too? Um, It's a line from the last scene, but we're talking about how, you know, it just once again underscores that these women continue to be forced to they're pitted against each other in Gilead. And instead of seeing it for what it is, the worst part is that Mrs. O'Connor sees it for what it is, because in that last scene, when Emily asks what happened to the husband, she makes a joke of it and says he probably got promoted. And, you know, the sad thing is that every woman there knows it's probably true. Mm -hmm. That was actually pretty funny. Yeah. But it's sad because it means that she understands and she's still playing into it. It's a good point. Playing through or playing up to it till her last breath. And then after her last breath, she's put out like a goddamn scarecrow. (laughs) is that what that was i was so confused i spent way too much time trying to figure out why they had all this jesus symbolism is it just a scarecrow is that what she's supposed to be i'm like why is she being strung up like jesus she's no jesus it could be both (laughs) (laughs) if you want to get right down to it i mean crucifixion not only was it a horrific way to Mm -hmm. die but it also puts the person on display to kind of serve as a warning Mm -hmm. to anybody else that wants to fuck around like the person who was executed did. Right. Scarecrow, Jesus, doesn't matter. The message is the same. Exactly. (laughs) Fair enough. The message is definitely the same. (laughs) Don't fucking do it. (laughs) And the fact that like, I kind of, I'm leaning more towards Scarecrow than like, attempting at the symbolism of the crucifixion just because the vast majority of people that are in the colonies this obviously seems a rarity that a wife has shown up there by the fact by her treatment and by the way that everyone's looking at her and interacting with her so they don't need a reminder about like don't do the thing where you're like holding down other other women for rape like they don't need that constant reminder i think it was more just like let's put her out on fucking display and as a form of punishment to her own self, as opposed to like trying to remind everyone else there, like here, let's not make an, let's make an example out of this one. So that way you don't do the same thing. Cause obviously the vast majority of women that are in the colonies are not going to be holding down other women for rape. They've already been sent to the colonies for the worst case scenario. (laughs) That's true. Did y'all love the little smiles and smirks that were spreading across all of those unwomen's (laughs) faces though? Oh, that was so Mm -hmm. gratifying. Little subtle smiles, little smirks, like as you hear as you hear Aunt Sarah in all of her distorted glory screaming, there will be consequences. And they're all just standing by with that little like, hmm. I mean, how much worse can it get? Yeah, I know. It's exactly what you were saying, though. It's rare enough to even see a wife come in. So then to see a wife get treated in such an epic way, this has got to be like just the highlight of their entire experience at the colonies, Mm -hmm. because I can't imagine it's a whole lot of mundane horror. Right. Apparently, aunts don't like unapproved crucifixions. That surprised me. I thought they'd they'd enjoy it. (laughs) No, no. The only crucifixions that are allowed are ones that are um, sanctified by Gilead. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> hey, Janine is back in oh, the house. Oh, hi, Janine. She gets off the bus and Janine is just herself. She's oh, super Janine. happy to see Emily. It's like she just got off the bus at summer camp or something and then she gets dragged and away. And she's still wearing her red handmaid's garb. So mm. she- That was weird. Like the, It was like a red pantsuit or something. It's the the um, it's her prisoner it's her execution outfit pants. It's the exact yes. outfit that she was wearing when she was surrounded by all the other handmaids about to be stoned to death. 
Oh, shit. I didn't even think mm-hmm. about that. I was oh, just thinking was about it? Emily's. Wait, how come Janine got a red one? Because Emily's wasn't red. Was it? Maybe it was. Remember, I know Emily had pants. I know we Emily's, talked about Emily's, pants. I don't remember it being Emily's color. prisoner jumpsuit was red. It was yes. red. Okay. And the Martha's yeah. was brown? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I think they were still in their same color. Okay. So I believe yeah, I believe so. That so. makes sense, I guess. If, right? If I'm wrong, please correct me. But digging back like from four months ago, I feel like that's correct. But Janine is still in her handmaid's garb that she was wearing when she was being encircled by all the other handmaids for the stoning, which means that when they, when mm. the guardian swooped her up and dragged her away, there was no chance for her to change. It was just straight into a bus and off to the colonies. Like Lydia made that decision pretty yeah. fucking swiftly, which we know that she did make that decision relatively quickly because of the conversation that she has with June in the, uh, in the cafeteria at the Rachel yeah. and Leah center. So we know that it's been, that it's happened relatively swiftly, but to see that lets us know that that decision was made Post haste. Pronto. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they embrace. And as soon as they show a human connection, they are ripped asunder. Can't be doing that. What a surprise. Um, so the next scene, we go back to the Boston Globe facility, and June is watching Friends. Ugh. I hate Same. Friends. Same. <laughs> you guys suck. It's a great episode, first of all. <laughs> the scene that they're playing from the Friends out of all the scenes they can play is a really okay, great one. Okay, then please educate those of us that hate Friends, because... Uh, Ugh. Could just never get on board with that show. Oh, it's Monica yeah. and Phoebe talk, or is it all three? I don't know. It's the women showing the men how a woman's body and erogenous zones work. And they draw, they take a woman's a picture and they map it all out and they have each erogenous zone as a number. And then they start going through and they're saying, this is, you gotta like, you can't just go straight for four. You got you just like men just do one, two, four, 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 four. No, no, no. You gotta do one three, two, six, a little seven. And as they're going through it, they're all just starting to orgasm and it's fucking hysterical. It's a great scene. That's all. But if you don't watch the show, then it's really lost on you. But I thought it was a really, out of every scene they could pick, I thought that was a really cool scene that they picked for her to be watching. Having never watched Friends, I've watched probably a total of 20 minutes, but I'm familiar with it because it's just, it's so over encumbering in like in our society like you can't get away from friends um like that yes. l- that little bit of clip that they were showing like it made it clear that there was definitely something about erogenous zones and that they were having fun with it and i understand the whole point of showing the audio for that scene in relation to june's experience with nick when we cut for the first part because she was owning her sexuality and she was it was all about her own individual erogenous zones totally yeah. get that just think friends is overrated <laughs> personally Regardless of whether or not we like Friends, don't like Friends, see it as a time capsule of the 90s or see it as like a fantastic comedy that can last through the ages, does not matter. What matters is that June is affording herself a chance to relax because in the very beginning of this episode, she's clutching onto that hammer, she's freaking out at every single noise, and she cannot find a moment of levity. By the time that we get to the end of this episode, we don't know how long it's been but she's affording herself a chance to like prop open a laptop, pull out those DVDs that she saw when she was making her first walkthrough and have a laugh. She actually has a laugh while watching this. And that's what's important about this. It doesn't matter what she's watching. It's just that she is watching something for her, for its own comedic value and for its own entertainment sake. It's a good point. And it just must be so weird to watch TV after all that time. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're just TV is just not even a thing. Although I would have really appreciated if she was uh, enjoying some levity out of a book, just because I feel like it would be so nice to be able to read. Inclined to agree with you on that. Um, I'm kind of secretly hoping that she was watching uh, Friends with the closed captioning on. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> Doesn't everybody? So as June is watching Friends and she's having this moment of levity and she's having a genuine laugh about something that's completely irreverent. I mean, it matters in the context of the episode because she's allowing, uh, earlier she allowed herself to have her own physical pleasure. But in the grand scheme of Gilead, this shouldn't be happening. She takes a sip from her coffee mug and then she looks at it introspectively. She gets this fantastic idea and starts collecting mugs and personal artifacts from all of the cubicles. She grabs the Red Sox hat. She grabs like the baseball that's signed. She grabs the extra shoe. She grabs 
the prayer candle and pictures and all of these sort of things. And at first you think to yourself, what is she doing? Why is she just grabbing all these artifacts off of all these people's desks? And then it all starts to make a little bit more sense as she moves her way down into the basement and she starts pinning things onto that bullet laden wall. I love that the first thing that she pins on is a pride um, postcard because that kind of helps tie it back into uh, Emily's story is one of the first Mm -hmm. things that's shot down in Gilead is the notion that a same-sex couple could love each other and have it be a true, genuine love the same way that any other couple should be afforded the right to, which, by the way, spoiler alert, they should be allowed that uh, luxury. Love is love is love. So Mm -hmm. that was a really nice, clear choice on their part by posting that first. And then you get, like, the license that's put up and the pictures, and June just creates this altar to all the lives that were lost at the Boston Globe in the name of the truth. I thought it was really, really powerful that she created that slaughterhouse mantle. Yeah. I found it really pertinent that she was uh, finding some purpose in meeting in her own quarantine. Mm-hmm. It really hit me hard this this month. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> I really, really felt her play extra mm-hmm. as I watched this rewatch. That's a really astute point. I don't know if it was astute, but it was definitely no, it, definitely where no, my head it was is at. absolutely because regardless of whether or not we are being kept in a slaughterhouse, which is what the Boston Globe was turned into, or just your single apartment, or in a house with your significant other or your partner and your kids, every single person has at this point experienced what it's like to be sequestered somewhere, not of their own volition. And we've all been creative as to how we're going to express ourselves and how we how we reconcile that time. So yeah, I would I would say it's yeah. very astute. She she chose a really well, when you put it like that. <laughs> she chose a really beautiful way to uh, to memorialize not just her time there, but the efforts of every single person whose blood laced that wall. Yeah, and she says a little prayer. It's mm. and she seems very peaceful. I'm thinking that the meditation time might be good for mm-hmm. her. Because I mean, <laughs> if you think about it, in spite of all the downtime that we see her have in the Waterford house, and we only see a fraction of that downtime, of that sitting at the window time on the window seat, waiting for somebody to tell her to do something. Fucking hell, her life is monotonous. She can't read, there's no TV, can't exercise. There's, I'm sure she can't knit. Nobody's going to let her have knitting needles because she might stab somebody. She really doesn't have any creative outlet at all. There's nothing that she can do with herself. And now she's in a place where she has all the time and the free space to do whatever she feels like. And that's also really, really cool. Mm -hmm. And I guess it just kind of makes me think of my own quarantine time too. My God, because all of a sudden (laughs) I got all the time to do anything that I had ever wanted to do before. And I don't have any excuses for not doing it. And that's, I I think I'll go create a fucking creative memorial right now. (laughs) Why not? I can do it. I have a question. I'm not really sure if either of you are going to be able to answer this for me because I don't know if your experience is much further than mine. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like to have an office job, but I, I was really surprised by how many candles are in offices. Thank you. I was wondering about that too. That seemed a bit weird as well. Um, The best that I can figure is that um, Boston Globe probably has people operating in their office 24 hours a day because of the size of the publication. And also the ceilings are really heavily lofted. So it's not like a normal eight-foot ceiling where if you have candles running, there's a chance that the fire alarm is going to pop pop it off. So maybe Mm -hmm. it's for the night crowd. Okay. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's, it did seem weird, and usually candles are against protocol in any sort of office setting. I would think so, yeah. right? They didn't let us have them in dorms that much, I knew for yeah, sure. Yeah, but they also don't trust us to have coffee makers <laughs> in dorms. So, yeah, that didn't strike me so much like as bizarre while watching it. But now that you're bringing it up, it is weird that there were a lot of candles around. I just feel like I don't know what cubicle etiquette is, but I feel like burning a scented candle is against it. <laughs> You know, yes, burning a scented candle would definitely be against it because, like, strong scents are really frowned yeah. upon. However, the one candle that we do see June pull up, um, when she's rummaging through all of the cubicles is a prayer candle, 
Mm. And those are usually unscented. Yeah. So sense. maybe you can have unscented candles if you're working the graveyard shift. I don't know. If anyone if anyone <laughs> no. that listens to us works at the Boston Globe and could pontificate upon exactly like <laughs> what your candle policy is, please reach out to us. We would be delighted to hear from you. Oh, shit. That would be wild to watch this episode if you actually worked at the Boston Globe. Can Holy you imagine? Shit, right? Like it's weird enough for the th- for the three of us, considering our proximity to um to Fenway and to Boston and having all yeah. of these like markers that we are inherently familiar with. So I do have two more thoughts. So um something that I really appreciated was the way that they ended this scene where they showed June kneeling in front of the uh, in front of the wall that's bullet laden with this makeshift altar and the nooses. And she looks up. And she looks up to the sky or to the ceiling very much in the same way that she is looking up through the noose in season two, episode one. In that very beginning scene at Fenway Park. So at Mm -hmm. Fenway Park, all of the handmaids are on those platforms and she has the noose around her neck and she looks up and she looks accepting of what's going to happen. And we've talked about this uh, where – she wasn't panicking nearly as much as the other girls. She just sort of had like was awash with acceptance. And she had that same mm-hmm. look on her face looking up while kneeling before this makeshift altar. This this acceptance mm-hmm. of this is the world I'm in. This is what I'm experiencing. And having to like kind of wrap her head around that as opposed to any sort of panic. There was no fear in her eyes. It was just a bit of peace and reverence, which – which was a really nice moment, but then to have that go to black and then have the Red Sox um, commentary playing with that mm. really hammered, really yeah. hammered that home that she's in that same sort of place of peace where she she understands that her life isn't hers at this point and she has mm-hmm. to do something else with it. It's also kind of leaning into that mental health aspect where she doesn't really give a shit if she lives or dies. It's not about her at this point. It's not about her own physicality. It's about what she can do to leave Hannah, her daughter, a better world. Mm. I think um, I like that you brought up that she looks up in the same way because I didn't really pick up on that. Mm -hmm. But in the hanging scene at Fenway, when she looks up to me, it screams that like that she's praying that she's looking to her heaven, to her God. That's her way of kind of accepting like we had definitely talked about, but also kind of just looking to the next life that whatever's happening to here in this life doesn't matter as much because she has her mm-hmm. faith. I think it's an interesting parallel that it happens in this episode because it reminds me of Mrs. O'Connor at the colonies. Um, and despite everything that's happening in her life, she still has her faith as twisted as her faith is. That's as twisted as about faith in as general. twisted as Mrs. O'Connor's faith is. As twisted as Gilead faith, Mrs. O'Connor's okay. faith. Um, yeah. But you could make the same argument for Catholicism, which is June's faith. Absolutely. You know, I could. Um, All three of us could. Just as many atrocities in the world as Gilead has. More atrocities um, than atheism. But it, it is an interesting parallel that despite what's happening with the atrocities that these women are experiencing in this life, that they still have their faith. But I feel like one is a little bit more, it's at least supposed to be shown as more wholesome and pure because when Mrs. O'Connor is spouting off about her faith, like it's just inducing all the mm-hmm. eye rolls. Uh, but with June, it, it does feel nice. Mm. It feels genuine. It doesn't feel manufactured. And the fact that she is finding this piece. And then also I feel like her making this memorial was kind of like a way for her to provide peace to the people who were lost in that place. Yeah. Yep. Because they weren't, you know, there's no one, we presume there's no one around to remember them. There's no one around to care about what happened there. Mm Mm-hmm. She's the one that's kind of like just bestowing grace upon this mm-hmm. like really like solemn moment and place and time. Right. That's memorializing. Absolutely. It. That's exactly what I was jotting down right after um, Marjorie started talking. And like as you were speaking, Scarlett, was that this prayer was for others and not for herself. Yeah. And that's what makes mm-hmm. it legitimate and true, regardless of your regardless of your religious ethos. You can appreciate that someone mm-hmm. is just praying for other souls versus mrs o'connor who is just saying like god will Mm -hmm. save me 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 it's all me an i statement and it's very selfish and relax yeah 
definitely. Yep. So awesome, Scarlet. I'm Scarlet. I'm really glad that you brought that point up. You're welcome. And then we fade to black, and it's silence for a few seconds, and then we start to get some highlights from a Red Sox game. I I liked that. I did too, but it was confusing to me because it caught me off guard. I forgot about it, and then. I got confused as to what episode my TV had jumped because, like you said, there's that pause. And so, like, in my mind, it was done. I was kind of, like, standing up, doing my thing. And then it came on. And I was like, oh, shit, I forgot about this. <laughs> but then I feel like it should have happened in the Fenway episode. I was trying to figure out why it was happening in the Boston Globe episode. Because the two are are related. You have these two icons of the past life of of the Northeast. You have the the Fen are you a Fenway Park, which was the home of the Boston Red Sox, and also like I don't know a lot about sports, but I feel like it's the oldest operating um baseball park. That's not the right word. That's not know. the right word for it. I don't know sports. <laughs> I suppose it's a park. Okay. But I don't know what the oldest one is. I feel though. like it's like very storied in that regard. And then you also have the Boston Globe, which is this left-leaning but still really reputable publication. So these these two icons of the Northeast that have been completely ripped apart by uh, by Gilead. So by playing the uh, the Sounds of the Red Sox game, it sort of was a throwback to that earlier time. Also, I mean, a lot of people tend to equate mm-hmm. baseball with church. So I can un- yeah, they can understand sort of. I don't know. I feel like I'm extrapolating here a bit. I have a question. Oh, go ahead. And I still stand by it. That that was you just answered it. But I still stand by it. Should have been in the Fenway episode. The Fenway sounds should have come at the end of the Fenway episode. But there were lots of little Red Sox. Um, yeah, I did see uh, those on the wall. Clues throughout the thing. There was like the Red Sox pennant on somebody's cuticle. I'm pretty sure I saw a Red Sox coffee cup. Yeah. I think that they were yeah. by closing the credits with the sounds of the Red Sox game, they were just kind of doing a little more memorializing of the the people in this place that were lost. The sounds of the Red Sox game are just kind of, it's a, it's a symbolism of sorts. That's what I took it's from it. It's not just a symbolism of sorts, but by giving the throwback to all of the things Fenway related. Um, so in the first episode of season two with having the um the makeshift theatrical lynching happening for all the handmaids that's where our brain goes it's like oh we're never going to view fenway the same way again but by having all of these moments and all these little like snippets mm-hmm. of all these normal people that worked at the boston globe and their affiliation with the red Sox shows that it's not just that the world is different for the handmaids. It's not just that like our perception of the world is different, but the world is different for everyone, every single layman and yeah. every single basic person. That's why they played this um, during this episode, because what else would you end the credits on in an episode that for June is entirely encapsulated in the Boston Globe to show that every person that worked at the Boston Globe, their life has been detrimentally affected by what's happened with Gilead. Other than the ripping away of that one institute that kind of holds them all together, which is Boston Red Sox baseball. Do you know what I wish would have tied that together really nicely? What would have tied it together really nicely? If instead of watching a friend's DVD, she was watching someone's recorded baseball game. Yes, that I'll agree with. Then it would have really flowed all together. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's still, I mean, I, I'm. it's really nitpicking. <laughs> it was more of just a curiosity of like Fenway. The sounds, because it hit me. I mean, it's definitely a, a visceral reaction. I just would have liked it in the Fenway episode. Maybe I would have liked it if the whole episode of the Fenway episode and the Boston Globe episode were all the same fucking episode. <laughs> Possibly that could have happened, but maybe it it's also so, we don't need to talk about this anymore. <laughs> well, maybe it's also that the being in the Boston Globe is sort of the closest thing that they have to like the earlier times and this level of normality, because like you're mm. she's surrounded by all these pictures and like all these little tidbits and things that remind everyone of what it was like before Gilead. She's able to watch friends and like that's her time capsule. And this recording of the sounds of the Red Sox game are part of that time capsule. Yeah. That I like. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe I think that. we've exhausted all of the thinky thoughts that we can about this. Love us? Hate us? Either way, let us know. We appreciate feedback from Intels and Incels. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
Or you can just shoot us an email at redresistancepodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to give special thanks to Mr. Scarlett for making our podcast sound amazing. Without him, we'd be all fuzz and echoes. We'd also like to give a shout-out to Peter Levesque of Heliovox for providing us with our badass intro and outro music. Thank you for listening, and try not to let the bastards grind you down.